HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio. That was the turkey. Um, I'm coming to you today live from Picinus, California, near Hollister, uh, Central California Grass-Fed Beef Ranch, and I'm being joined by Eric Anders, who's calling in from the Champlain Valley of Vermont. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Great, Severin. How are you? Super great. Super nice sunshine. Uh, so... I'm really excited to talk to you today on the radio about the Sail Freight Project. But um, before we go into that um, endeavor of yours, um, let's get a little bit of background on your farming past. Um, I feel like it's easier for me to explain to people that you're sailing food with sailboats once I explain some of your other backstories. So can we start with um, your farm and Good Companion Bakery? Sure. Um... I have a 110-acre farm here uh, just outside the town of Virgennes, Vermont. Um, I'm not a birthright farmer. My uh, parents were both professors, but uh, my aunt and uncle farmed, so I grew up uh, uh, doing a lot of farm jobs uh, during the summer, particularly a lot of haying, and uh, kind of caught the bug that way. And uh, in college, I did a couple uh, apprenticeships, one in New York State and one in France. But I didn't really get a chance to settle down and start farming uh, full-time until I was 34. And um, I'm 40 now, uh, and I don't know if that disqualifies me yet from uh, participating in Greenhorns, but maybe almost. Don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the main focus of the farm right now is uh, integrated duck and rice farming, modeled on the work of Tako Furuno, a Japanese farmer and author of the book Power of Duck. And um, 
we also have a wood-fired bakery on the farm, and we do a pretty lively trade of uh, bread and pastry baking for farmer's markets in the summer. We crop some wheat, too, um, and are working towards using that more in the bakery, but the grain production effort has really shifted over time from, from wheat to rice. So where did you come on this idea to grow rice in Vermont? You know, at first glance, it seems a strange idea. Well, um, 12 years ago, I lived for a year in uh, Miyagi, Japan. That's a prefecture in the northern uh, part of the main island of Japan. And uh, it's very temperate there. Uh, snows in the winter, just like in the northeast. And uh, people there were, of course, growing rice in huge quantities. Uh, there were rice paddies everywhere you looked, in the countryside and even in the city, too. Um, and I, uh, when I began farming, I hadn't yet learned that there were people experimenting with uh, similar varieties of rice in the Northeast. Uh, but starting in 2010, I learned about the work of um, Takeshi and Linda Akaogi in uh, southern Vermont, and uh, they had definitely proven that Japanese-type rice varieties could work in the region. And so I kind of made, made it my project to take their work to uh, the small commercial scale, and that's still what we're working on now. Uh, we're hoping um, that rice will be the major revenue source for the farm starting next year. So for those of you who are struggling to scribble those down, uh, Eric has a very diligent open source philosophy. Um, he shares everything and all the links on his blogs. So you can go and check out the the um, Vermont Rice Project yeah, uh, yeah. online. It's linked yeah. from this. Yeah, it's uh, www.vermontrice.com. And... Um, yeah, we're part of a little network of rice growers, and uh, some of us are more at sort of the homestead uh, scale or experimental scale of rice, and others of us are kind of reaching more towards producing acreage of rice. And um, uh, there are a lot of great reasons to grow rice at a variety of scales, but uh, my interest is really, uh, you know, sort of, the six-acre project size that I feel like that's uh, plenty of work for uh, me and the people that work with me, and uh, but it's small enough that you can still kind of farm it like a garden uh, rather than uh, like a uh, extensive monoculture going over hundreds or thousands of acres. Well, and let's describe just a little bit the work. Um the work of planting and the work of harvesting. How do you how do you organize that work? Well, rice is a really long season crop. Uh, the variety of rice we're talking about it's definitely domestic rice or rhizo sativa and not wild rice or or uh, uh, dryland rice or anything like that. It's the um, typical of varieties of rice that are grown in Japan and probably. Uh, Korea and the northern areas of China to uh, a variety known as japonicas. Um, basmati and other long grain rices are of the indica family, and they will not grow in the northeast. Uh, only the japonicas will, to our knowledge. 
and um, the season begins uh, starting the very beginning of April and doesn't end until September. So the rice, uh, we, we begin soaking the rice the beginning of April and seed it down into flats by around April 15th. And the flats grow under frost protection. Uh, usually we use a kind of flooded low tunnel. And by the end of May, the rice shoots uh, have uh, populated these flat flats and have grown to six or seven inches long. And um, we use a machine called a rice transplanter to plant these flats into the field in rows. And uh, the rice transplanter is a kind of amphibious vehicle, and it can claw its way along through uh, a um, rice paddy that's flooded with several inches of water. So um, you can also transplant rice by hand, uh, but we moved to using a rice transplanter this year, uh, this last season. And the rice uh, stays flooded in the field for a couple months, and then by the end of July, we begin drying off the rice field in preparation for harvest. Um, by August, the plants are heavy with grain. They, they produce these uh, panicles of rice, these uh, heads of rice that droop over, and it turns uh, yellow. And by September, the grain and the rice paddy are dry enough and ripe enough that uh, uh, we can come in and harvest it. And uh, this year, we're going to be getting a mini combine for harvesting. Last year, we used uh, a crew of hand workers with sickles. Uh, sorry, where did you find a crew of hand workers with sickles? Uh, well, in uh, Burlington, there is a pretty large community of uh, Nepali refugees. And uh, those people really have rice in their blood. And uh, I made a, a contact with the organization that they farm for. It's uh, called New Farms for New Americans. And uh, I uh, managed to borrow them for a day. And uh, I showed them how to take the bus down from uh, uh, Burlington to uh, Ferrisburg. And we walked to the farm, and they spent a nine-hour day hand-harvesting rice. Uh, for these people, I got the impression it was the most rice they had seen in one place since they'd left Asia, and they were, they were really uh, super excited about uh, working with rice. Um, and they have a little rice project where they're uh, working in Winooski now, but they're planning, they're planning on expanding it. But for the time being, their rice op farming opportunities are kind of limited. Anyway, uh, I paid them by the hour, and uh, we got a lot of rice harvested. And it, it was really uh, interesting because the, the crew was uh, of all, like everywhere from 30 to probably 70-year-olds were uh, working. In, I had uh, uh, 10 people, and everybody kept busy for the whole day. Everybody found a job to do. It's a really, it's a really lovely image in the mind. I wish yeah. I'd been there with my video camera. Uh, so, so now you've you've taken on this weird project of rice, and are making it work. And then, and then you've got another idea in your head 
um, around sailboats. Will you explain the genesis of the sailboat project? Yeah. Uh, well, it, my project is called the Vermont Sail Freight Project, and it's related to the grain project in a way that I can try to explain that uh, basically my interest is food systems that are powered by contemporary energy instead of by fossil fuel energy. <coughs> and I'm interested in rice because it's proven to be one of the systems that has the most positive return of energy in the form of food uh, for energy invested. And uh, as someone who's interested in uh, the thermodynamics of food, that's really encouraging and worth exploring. Uh, it, by way of adapting to contemporary realities, we do have some gas-powered devices at different stages in the process. Um, but you can farm rice without them. And in fact, the Nepalis farm without them too. Anyway, I know I'm drifting back into the rice here, but um, the, once the food is produced, the second half of the equation is getting that food to market. And it's well understood that the system by which we get our food to market in America is one of the most colossally energy-wasteful systems on the planet. And I started to ask myself, well, does this have to be so? And can we perhaps make a connection between uh, energy consciousness in food production and energy consciousness in food distribution? And uh, other people are beginning to make these connections, too. Um, it, and uh, there, anyway, um, there are human-powered vehicles that people are using for food distribution purposes, like bicycle-powered and whatever. And, uh, but uh, if you need to transport tonnage using contemporary energy, you can't do much better than water. Water makes possible a enormous efficiency by capturing wind power or even using human or animal power to transport large loads over water. You can't do it quickly, but you can do it very, very energy efficiently. And so that's an interest in uh, cargo hauling watercraft that I've had since I was a little kid, and it hasn't gone away. And I'm really interested in kind of resurrecting the commercial, agricultural, inland, cargo-hauling boat reinvented for the issues of the 21st century. That's what the project's about. How many times can you repeat that phrase? <laughs> Probably none. I don't even remember what I said. But uh... <laughs> That's great. So this is the talk. We're talking about the logistics of distribution yeah. on a scale that we can manage in a way that matches our ethic of production, we are working on distribution and, and right, collaboratively. Right. Tell me about right. the team. Well, um, a few months ago, I partnered with uh, the Willowell Foundation, and the Willowell Foundation is a uh, 501c3 based in Moncton, Vermont, that, uh, among other things, offers an alternative senior year for uh, high school students in the local school district. And they have a focus on uh, food-based and environmental education. So they are my organizational sponsor for the project. 
and I've been working pretty closely with uh, Matt Schlein, who is the project director, and Hannah Mueller, who is the administrative director, and uh, Mac Roche and Tony Zambino, uh, who are AmeriCorps volunteers working for uh, Willowell this year. And uh, we've, we've made a lot of headway uh, setting the ground for uh, this project to uh, take off in 2013. So the basic, the basic thing is you're going to sail cargo from Vermont down mm-hmm. Lake Champlain through the locks, through the 17, under the 17 bridges, by sail power, down to New York City to sell produce all along the way. And That's right. When do, you, when do you start building the boat? Uh, we're beginning construction in about six weeks. Um, that's uh, assuming that all of our fundraising, uh, or at least some of them, come into place and we have enough uh, money to uh, get started on the project. Um, and we're going to begin, uh, begin building around the 1st of March, and we expect to launch the boat by very beginning of July. Uh, the platform that we're using in terms of boat construction is not the most beautiful or elegant uh, vessel that was ever designed or built. Um, it's, it's a box uh, with a point on the front end and a mast stuck in it, but, uh, you know, it's not... Uh, not elegant, but it's extremely functional. And our goal is to be able to haul uh, eight or nine tons of cargo. That that's sort of, uh, for me, the number at which we're really talking about cargo and freight and not just a couple cases of potatoes in the bottom of a regular sailboat. Um, but it's not, it's not so big that we can't approach it as a grassroots uh, initiative. It's something that we can do uh, on a shoestring and prove a point, and hopefully we can expand from there. So just to put that in farmer language, uh, eight or nine tons, that's basically a small box truck worth of yes, produce. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let's also bring into farmer terms, what kind, of, what kind of cargo, what kind of value per pound, what kind of yield on a delivery are you, are you thinking about here? Well, it really depends on exactly what type of cargo we end up uh, carrying. Some cargoes are more uh, dollar-dense than others. So if we end up carrying, say, only potatoes, uh, the project will make a lot less money on a delivery than it would if we carried all maple syrup. Um, But we're we expect to carry both potatoes and maple syrup and offer both uh, for sale. And how the uh, economics will work out, I'm not exactly sure. Um, essentially, the, the reason we think the project will work economically is that uh, regional non-perishable goods like potatoes and maple syrup are chronically undersupplied in the lower Hudson Valley and uh, the New York City area, and always command a good premium. So, if we pay our growers and suppliers a uh, a good wholesale price, we can mark up that price uh, 
pretty significantly, enough that we can cover the costs of operating the boat. Um, that's not even considering what we'll do on the return voyage. Uh, ultimately, I hope the project can be carrying things from the Port of New York to distribute in the Champlain Valley, like coffee and chocolate. But the logistics of that are pretty daunting, and frankly, they're not the first priority of the project. Really, we want I'm this... Uh, I'm I'm lobbying hard for cheap art supplies. Yeah, okay. On the return voyage. <laughs> okay. Well, we can talk about that. The the um, primary function and so, of the And so and so let's talk okay, so the so obviously maple syrup will yield you more than rice yeah. or potatoes, although still rice and potatoes you're saying are a worthwhile element of the cargo. Yeah. Um, and how long does it take um from top to bottom? What, what's involved in that journey? We think it'll take us about 10 days uh, without having fully accounted for uh, the amount of time we would spend docked at market locations, that being a little bit of an unknown. But uh, it's 300 miles. If we start from Burlington, maybe more like 325 miles. Um, and as you mentioned, there's a canal along the way. Uh, we enter the Hudson at Fort Edward, and proceeding south along the Hudson, uh, we pass through Albany. Uh, below, around Albany, the Hudson is tidal. So uh, riding the tides down and back again gives us an additional uh, tool to work with um, in moving the boat along. And, uh, yeah, we are hoping to form good partnerships with uh, South Street Seaports and uh, Atlantic Basin and Red Hook and to be able to dock maybe at multiple locations in, in uh, the New York City area along the waterfront. And, uh, <coughs> the My understanding that you're still in that beautiful phase of uh, partnership development where people can approach you who have an interest in... Uh, water-based transport and in street market revival and, and or people who have deep docking space in any of these river towns should really, it sounds like, be calling you up pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, by all means. I'm happy, happy to talk. Uh, the, the connections I've made thus far are very promising. Um, considering the, the state of our project that we haven't built the boat yet, we're we're still in our fundraising and planning stage. Uh, my the partnerships that I've made are not really ready to uh, hit the front page of the newspaper yet, but I've made some very encouraging and very positive connections in the uh, New York City waterfront community that suggest that uh, once we're ready to go, the pro the project will get a good reception. But by all means, I'm very interested in discussing the project with anybody interesting, interested in collaborating on any level, no matter where they're located along the route, whether they're in the Champlain Valley or uh, in New York State along the upper or lower Hudson or in the New York City area. Um, I'm so excited, and, and we at the Grange um, are very excited to host you for a dinner in July that uh, officially is now public notice, um, Big Grange Dinner. 
mm-hmm. in late July in Waylonsburg, New York, to talk about self-rate collaboration, interstate self-rate collaboration with the farming community over on our side of the lake. So that's official. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, and the boat, I, I have every reason to believe that the boat will be ready uh, ready for the occasion. So I hope to uh, I hope to arrive at the Essex Grange by boat. Um, and, yeah, uh, kind of the hope with this and, whole and, thing and is And those that, of you who are just, just drooling with anticipation, don't worry, we will send out a press release. <laughs> um, uh, okay, I wanted to just, I, we had a little extra time today because we don't have um, a slot in the next slot. So I, yeah. I thought it would be really interesting to just talk a little bit more about the the design principles that you're coming into this with and the, the trial boat folks and sure. and also your ideas around open source uh, collaboration for your distribution logistics software. Those are very, for me, those are such exemplary thoughts that you're having and I'd love for them to be shared with this radio community. Yeah, um, well, as far as the design uh, goes, we are pretty close to having a, a finalized design that we know is going to meet all of our criteria. There may be uh, some aspects of uh, framing members and fasteners that we need to subject to review before we totally commit to a design that we will free, freely distribute. But uh, essentially, we hope that... Uh, one of the outcomes of the project will be a model that other interested parties can replicate. And one of the metrics that we're using to evaluate a successful design is purchase cost per ton capacity. And the vessel that we're looking at, because its construction is so simplified and because the materials are fairly ordinary materials rather than expensive marine materials. It has a very low purchase cost per ton capacity. Uh, there are some compromises involved in that low cost, but um, all in all, we feel like we've made some good design choices that will allow us to accomplish our mission at a price we can afford and will still yield us a vessel with uh, enough functionality and a long enough lifespan that it will be a useful tool for farmers for a long time to come. So it's, um, it's quite a bit better than a raft, but uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to cross the Atlantic in it. It's appropriate for hauling cargo on inland waterways. And looking back into history, uh, these cargo boats that uh, hauled goods on the inland waterways were never... Uh, masterfully built uh, state-of-the-art boats built to impeccable standards. They were built often by farmers and designed to do a job and to do that job effectively and economically. So really, that's sort of what we're trying to reinvent um, given the skill sets that we have as farmers and volunteers and given the job that we're trying to do. Yeah, it calls to mind the, um, that storybook, um, The Ox Cart Man. Do you know that storybook? Oh, uh, no, I don't. They, 
they spend the summer, you know, farming and gathering the grain and growing the flax, and they spend the winter making the brooms and spinning the flax and knitting the sweaters, and he spends the winter making an ox cart and making a yoke and training his oxen, and then he every spring he goes off um, to the city and he sells all of the wares and all of the goods and all of the farm products, and then he sells his ox and he sells his wagon and he kisses the ox on the nose, and then he walks home from the town with just, you know, a little kettle and some knives and, and, a, and a kerchief full of money. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful storybook. Well, actually, a lot of the inland water trade used to work like that because a lot of vessels used to be one-way vessels. Like where, where I grew up on the Susquehanna, uh, the origins of the, the colonial settlements on the upper Susquehanna, like Binghamton, uh, flourished because of one-way trade down the river. The, uh, the people went down on boats and they came back by land exactly like you described. But we're hoping. So we uh, so we have a historical precedent, um, oh, yeah. and then and then what what makes it what makes it so reflective of the of the open source principles that you've been talking so much about? How do how are we improving upon um, this kind of colonial or export based uh, economic model? Well, um, I think a lot of farmers will appreciate that a certain amount of success at uh, the small-scale end of things depends on effectively being able to convey the story of what you're doing to the public. Uh, like, there's, there's a potato that was grown on an extensive monoculture uh, farm in Iowa, and there's a farmer that was grown by your neighbors using... Uh, methods that enhance the, the soil that's right in your immediate vicinity. The two potatoes might look identical next to each other, but one has a different story behind it and has value that's embedded in the intangible aspects of its production. So what we're trying to do is make the method of distribution part of the story of the farm goods and to sort of invite anybody that participates in this project, whether as crew or as a producer or as a uh, purchaser or as a host uh, at the waterside uh, for a uh, uh, docking session where we'll do a little market or something, we invite those people to be sort of characters to take on a role in, in this, this story and to become, become part of it. Um, if that makes makes any sense, <laughs> it's uh, it has a narrative to it that the the production of food involves all of us, and that the choices that we make shape the world around us. So, by choosing to get your twenty pound bag of potatoes from the sale freight project rather than from the local supermarket you are actually tangibly helping to create a world in which we're transporting non-perishables using wind and skill and boats rather than uh, using uh, semi-tractors on the interstate at 75 miles an hour. That these are choices that we can all make to shape the world we'll live in in the future. 
Yeah, I, I love it because um, for me it also is so um, resonant with the tradition of the Grange movement, which I've been researching. We have a 100-year centennial anniversary at the Waylandsburg Grange, and so I've been working on an exhibit um, and researching it for our New Farmers Almanac. And, you know, the Grangers really got involved in cooperative banking, cooperative elevators, cooperative feed supply, essentially designing institutions to meet their needs based on their principles and understanding that they wanted to avoid usurious um, and kind of bankruptcy, bankruptcy-inducing systems um, as they had fallen victim to the monopoly power of the railroads and had fallen victim to um, the behavior of small banks. And then, and then, you know, especially then after the and during the Great Depression, a lot of small banks defaulting on on farmers and the prices just falling out of the market. So these are these are obviously more ambitious businesses to take on. They're multi-farmer businesses. They have a lot more ins and outs than just you know staying on the farm and 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 producing. Um, but I think exemplify the the next uh, logical phase of our rebuilding of this food system and, and the next logical phase of uh, extrapolating our principles into a, a new economic framework that makes it an option on the table, uh, even if we're still a minority player and, and on the preponderance of food is, no. you know, still being shipped crazy distances <laughs> by mega diesel vehicles. Yeah. Uh, initiating like this is, is 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 not only poetic, but I think um, a powerful testament to the like logistics end and the human the human ecology that it takes to bring out new business models. That's exactly the intention, and uh, the beneficiaries of uh, the project will be farmers from the start, and the. Uh, our goal is that uh, after this business is incubated by Willowell, that uh, ownership will be transferred entirely to producers within two to three years. If, um, if the project's at all successful, that we hope that this will persist as something that's uh, farmer-created and, and farmer-run farmer and farmer-owned. Farmer-owned. Doesn't that sound nice? Farmer owned. Yeah. Let's let's say that a lot yeah, more times like out loud. What farmer wouldn't like to be a shareholder in a water shipping cooperative? You know, I know I would. <laughs> I'm looking forward actually to the day when when I'm one of several shareholders and not the the project director with every single decision weighing on my shoulders uh, almost exclusively. Well, um, I'm I'm very impressed with your shoulders. I'm very impressed with your project. Uh, I'm thrilled that um, Greenhorns will be collaborating in some way, and I'm hopeful that we can ship some cargo with you um, through the Essex Producers Co-op. And um, I just have great news that we are able to ship also the New Farmers Almanac, um, which just... Uh, is in the printer house right now. Great. Um, 4,000 copies we have coming out. So that'll be hopefully on board as well. Terrific. Yeah. Um, yeah okay, no, it's, so it's, it's... I know that there were um, some positions available for, for collaborating with this project on a paid or semi-paid basis. <clears throat> Do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. 
at this point, we're uh, uh, offering, well, we're, we're basically holding the door open for people with uh, uh, skills or unskilled uh, volunteer hours to offer during the construction and trialing phases. Um, we will, starting in uh, sometime in April, the boat is going to be moved to the Willowell site, and we hope to be able to provide times when people can uh, volunteer to work uh, on the boat under the supervision of a, a crew leader, most likely myself. Um, and that'll be right through to launch. So I have the sort of parameters of volunteership for the project uh, written up, and I believe I ha have forwarded a copy to you. Um, and in addition, we're uh, offering what we call uh, site partnership uh, arrangements with people who have access uh, to a suitable docking spot uh, on anywhere uh, from, say, Saratoga on south. We're seeking partners who can provide us with a place uh, for the boat to dock and uh, distribute cargo for a few hours. Um, so we define in the written site, or written site partner job description, we've defined a little bit about what that entails and how the project works and how the communications and logistics will be managed. But uh, essentially we're hoping to work with people who have uh, access to waterside sites in a way that uh, involves absolute minimum of... Uh, management on the part of those parties. Those are the, the two main things related to the project that we're offering right now. There may also be opportunities to crew on the boat, um, both during the testing of the vessel that's going to take place on Lake Champlain between um, July and September when we head south with cargo and uh, possibly afterwards. Uh, it's really hard to say exactly what will pan out. We may have some opportunities to run some modest loads of cargo just around the lake uh, during that period. We'll have to see what we're able to put together. But if you're interested in uh, experiencing the sort of baby steps of the rebirth of commercial cargo hauling watercraft, we strongly encourage you to, to get in touch with me and we'll find a way to involve you. We've already gotten uh, some uh, very welcome and very significant offers of help from uh, people with uh, great uh, proven talents in the uh, boat building fields. We had uh, a boat builder offer to stitch us our sails uh, free of charge, Matthew Wright of Brattleboro, I can name him, and uh, Kristen Ripley is going, and she's in... Uh, New York City, she's going to be doing some carving for the boat. So offers like this, uh, very, very welcome, and an opportunity for uh, people out there to make their mark on this project at an early state, stage of development. Um, so uh, that's, that's basically uh, what's on offer. So you can find out more um, and read to your heart's content and look at beautiful CAD mock-ups 
uh, dock side, cargo design, all these things on his blog, which is the Vermont Sales Freight Project dot WordPress. Is that correct? Yes. Also, and, if you um, put Ver- we we've been we've been blogging about uh, development on our on our blog as well on Greenhorns and. Um, is you don't have a mailing list, do you? No, no. We'll hopefully get that together shortly. So. Okay, so so you know, keep an eye on that. Put it on your RSS and mm-hmm. um, join us in July to meet with Eric and eat at the Grange. Uh, Kristen Ripley's coming up to do the carving project uh, and the painting project in April. So it's all happening. Uh, I look forward to this very much. Uh, while I have. You still, I say thank you to Eric and to Heritage Radio, and I remind all of you lovely listeners, now is the time to put in your order. The New Farmer's Almanac is 336 pages long. 120 contributors um, have made this a really successful publication, and we just got news. Um, We're being distributed by AK Press. So we're we're actually a self-published. We we become a publishing publisher, and um, so that's very great. And and of course, we're already worried about 2014's almanac. Um, the editorial group is getting together in February um, to start assigning essays out into the world. If you miss the boat on this one, uh, come catch the next boat, and just email almanac at thegreenhorns.net or me, Severin at thegreenhorns.net, to jump aboard. These, these collaborative projects are such a great, a great thing. I'm, I'm so happy. Uh, Eric, I'll see you back in Vermont very soon. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having Looking me. Looking forward to it. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, I have one more announcement. I'm so sorry. Uh, this is January, and therefore we are very busy with farm mixers. Um, Greenhorns representatives are at EcoFarm at Southern Sog, at Moses. Uh, oh, dear, I forgot some more mixers. But anyway, what you're going to need to do is go on the Greenhorns website and join our mailing list so that you get the blast. We've got stuff going on this year in Texas, in Kentucky. Uh, we've got stuff going on with uh, this Vermont project. It's really, it's, it just continues to be more ambitious every year, so we'd appreciate you to get involved a little bit and uh, contribute where you can. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.